series of lectures this year. I'm delighted that we have His Honor Judge Andrew Mennery with us, who will be speaking to us this evening. Uh, he's going to speak first. There'll be a chance for some questions and answers. And we're due to finish at about 20 past seven. Uh, we will finish with night prayer, a very abbreviated form, and I will give those out um, towards the end of the evening. So without further ado, can I please introduce His Honor Judge Andrew Mennery. Budget clubbing now. <laughs> uh, well, first let me introduce myself. I am Andrew Maneri, pronounced Maneri, as in canary or fairy or. But uh, I've had it mispronounced for uh, many years. Well, for over 30 years, I practiced as a barrister in this city and the Northwest, including 10 years as Queen's Counsel. I was appointed a full-time judge in 2013 and appointed to my current position now in April of last year. Now, my official title is the Resident Judge at Liverpool Crown Court and the City, as a consequence, confer on me, I'm very proud to say, the title of the Honorary Recorder of Liverpool. I think that technically makes me the second citizen of Liverpool after the Mayor. I don't get any, though, discount on my council tax. <laughs> now, my elderly parents, as you won't be surprised to learn, are very proud of me, especially my mother. And especially because uh, she was told by a teacher at my junior school that the teacher didn't think I would amount to anything at all. <laughs> I think the exact words the teacher used were, Andrew is bright and breezy. But a little more brightness and a little less breeze would be appreciated. Well, as the senior Crown Court judge here in Liverpool, I have responsibility uh, for the work of 15 full-time uh, Crown Court judges and several dozen part-time judges as well, who all together with me do the work of the court. Now, you all know where Liverpool Crown Court is. It operates from the QE2 Law Courts on Derby Square, near to the Victoria Monument, at one end of Castle Street, facing the Town Hall at the other end. So two neighbouring buildings where people do a lot of talking and the order is achieved out of chaos most of the time. I was going to say something else about the Town Hall, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> just in case we have any politicians with us tonight. Now, for history buffs amongst you, a little history lesson, a very quick one. The court was opened in 1984, a year after I started practice here in Liverpool. And so we have grown old together, and we both now have bits that are starting to wear out. <laughs> it's a building on the site of the original Liverpool Castle which stood there in that position until the early 1700s. And the current cells in the Crown Court are in fact modelled on the old dungeons in the castle. Not really. <laughs> it's now a combined court centre, housing the Crown, the Magistrates and the Youth Courts, and is the only such facility in the country. About 400 people work in the building. And another interesting bit of trivia for you, when it was built, it contained the third most toilets in any public building <laughs> um, in Europe. 
That's a lot of toilets. <laughs> and like most organisations, we are now going paperless. <laughs> that doesn't extend though to the toilets. The Liverpool Crown Court is the largest Crown Court centre outside London. Bigger even than the Old Bailey and one of the busiest. On average, we deal with around 4,000 cases a year, covering all types of serious offending. And I wouldn't want you to get the impression that, uh, from that that Liverpudlians are more badly behaved than anyone else. They're not. Though when it comes to crime, Scousers do seem to be remarkably enterprising. In fact, the level of crime and the seriousness of the offences committed in neighbouring cities like Manchester is at a different and a much higher level altogether. But we at Liverpool Crown Court cover a large geographical area. And Merseyside Police are also very good, better than most forces, at catching the bad guys. But sadly, you won't be surprised to learn that almost a quarter of the, of the offences that we deal with um, are drug-related. Drug trafficking brings out the entrepreneurial spirit in the, the average Liverpudlian. The highest percentage in the country. And where you have drugs, you have uh, gang activity, guns and serious violence. There are about 10 shooting incidents a month in Merseyside. They don't all make the papers, unfortunately, they don't always result in someone being killed or seriously injured, but often they do. One of the guns recovered recently by the police in Liverpool, from an address in Liverpool, uh, that featured in a case before our Crown Court recently, was an Uzi submachine gun, a weapon capable of firing 600 rounds a minute. Now, can you imagine the damage that could be caused by that sort of weapon on the streets of this city. Now, interestingly, despite the fact that everybody outside Liverpool has a pretty poor impression of us and thinks that the average scouser would steal his grandmother's hubcaps, the reality is that the offences that we deal with at most of the time are not offences of dishonesty. Dishonesty only accounts for about 11% of the offences that we deal with. Sexual offences amount to a similar percentage of the work we do. But while I've given you percentages, that perhaps masks the fact that in relation to all offence types across the board, that Liverpool Crown Court deals with more cases of all types than most other court centres. For instance, it may not represent most of what we do, but we here at Liverpool Crown Court deal with more sexual offences than any other court centre in the country. And so every day, in every courtroom, there are people who will be affected significantly, one way or another, by the work that we do and the decisions we make. Whether they are victims of crime or witnesses who are concerned about the prospect of giving evidence, or defendants who have been accused of offending, or have committed offences. That many of these people are vulnerable, one way or another, by reason of their age, by reason of being very young or very old, 
by reason of living in situations which put them at risk or are otherwise deeply damaging. And the way in which I and other judges work and the decisions we make are likely to have a profound effect on some or all of these people. Victims of crime, quite rightly and understandably, want and are entitled to expect justice. And defendants want and are entitled to expect that they will be dealt with fairly according to the law and with appropriate courtesy. We live and work in a culturally and ethnically diverse city. And these differences are reflected in the people we encounter. That the judges and court staff must strive to respect these differences and, where possible, accommodate them. So that everything that happens is fair. As you would expect, being just and fair is our guiding principle, our mission statement, if you will. As a judge, I have taken an oath to try and achieve it in all that I do. I, my oath says that I will do right to all manner of people after the laws and usages of this realm without fear or favour, affection or ill will, so help me God. Get that right and I as a judge will, I believe, have made a positive contribution to the community I serve. But what does it mean to do right? to be fair. Well, of course, it means diligently understanding and applying the law. It means ensuring that our processes are accessible to everyone, that don't disadvantage or discriminate against anyone, and are working as they should. But for most judges, if not all judges, and certainly for me, there is an extra dimension. You see, I'm not only a judge, I'm also a Christian. Or is it I'm a Christian who also happens to be a judge? And my faith is fundamental to me. It informs the way I live, including the way I approach my work. It doesn't mean that day to day I act any differently to my colleagues who don't share my faith or profess any faith at all. But it provides for me a purpose, a, a reason for the approach that I try to take to the work I do. And it is the thing that drives me, or inspires me, to try to maximise the positive impact that the core centre where I work has in the, the community. Now, it might sound like a paradox. But a Crown Court, Liverpool Crown Court, a place inhabited by people who in the main don't want to be there, be they victims or other witnesses or jurors or defendants, can I believe be a place where Jesus' big idea really is seen in action? And the big idea? To love your neighbour. Now, it was an idea spoken of by Jesus lots of times during his ministry, and it is, in fact, recorded in one way or another in all four of the Gospels. It's the key, I believe, to the good life, the key to a better society, 
and the key to a restored heart. It's an idea that isn't unique to Christianity, of course. Most people I know, most faith systems of whatever stripe, accept the call to love your neighbour as yourself. However, it's one thing to know something, and quite another to work out the implications of an idea that's so familiar, so taken for granted, that it no longer has much force in reality, no longer shapes the way that we live our lives. And this, this evening, is my Lenten thought. This is my challenge to you all for Lent. Now, a while ago, I think I was in the dentist or something, and I was reading a magazine, one of these business magazines that was there in the waiting room, uh, waiting for me to go in to see the dentist. And I read an article uh, that was talking about why it is that so many organizations and businesses struggle to get better at what they do. The uh, article opened with this question. It said, why do so much education and training, management consulting, business research, so many books and articles produce so little change in what managers and organizations actually do? And the writers noticed that companies would spend millions investing in research and development learning and training, and yet so often there would be no noticeable fundamental change in the way that the company operated. And the article continued by giving the example of an electrical company that hired a consulting firm to help it with the process of deregulation. And the consultants came in and after lots of meetings and research, conversations, and data analysis and after spending um, a lot of money, they found in an office, on a shelf, covered in dust, a 500-page document created by another consulting firm four years earlier that offered the very same recommendations that they had reached. In fact, for millions of pounds, this is what they concluded, the new company. They said, the old document was very good. Our recommendations are basically the same. The problem is not analysis, it's implementation. You see, this company already had the information. The problem was that they had failed to put into uh, practice the information they had. The article referred to this situation as a knowing-doing gap. That is, you know what you need to do and yet you fail to do what you need to do. You know, but you don't do. Now, this isn't just a problem in business today, it's a problem for any organisation, including the one that I work for. And it can be a problem for us, for you and me. It can be a problem for churches, like this fine cathedral, and for people who say they follow Jesus. You see, it's a problem to know, sorry, it's possible to know a lot about Jesus, to know scripture, to know the stories in the Bible, to know theology, and actually not do 
actually not put those things into practice. But like some of you, I grew up in a religious home. I was raised in something called Sunday school. Does anyone remember Sunday school? We learned about the Bible. I've listened to a lot of sermons in my time, and I've explored many aspects of my faith. But I'd be lying if I said I didn't recognize this knowing, doing gap in my own life. I know God is a forgiving God, but I hold grudges against people. I know God is a God of truth, and yet I use situations and people to try to get my way or to make people think I'm better than I am. I know God cares first and foremost about the needs of others, and yet so often I find myself putting my own needs first. The simple truth is, there is a big difference between knowing and doing. And here's the really dangerous thing. Other people see this. Other people see this gap. It's a gap that Jesus saw in his own disciples. In Luke's Gospel, that we read in chapter 6, that Jesus challenged them one day, asking, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? In other words, why do you say you follow me if you don't follow what I say? And it was for this precise reason, this knowing-doing gap that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. The story begins in Luke chapter 10 at verse 25. And the context for the story is all important. I'm sure you could all tell me the story of the Good Samaritan. But the context for the story is of critical importance to understanding why it is that Jesus told the story. Now, the story of the Good Samaritan begins appropriately in this way. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Said this expert, or asked this expert in the law. For the people of God, you see, first century Jews, this sense, their sense of what it meant to be saved, how to inherit eternal life, was wrapped up in how they followed their religious laws, how observant they were. And he, this expert in the law, wanted to know, Jesus, what do you emphasize? What do you think I should do? Which rules, which laws do you say are the most important? so that I can please God and so that I can inherit eternal life. And Jesus responded to him with another question, as Jesus so often did. But what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Asked Jesus. And the expert in the law answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now, Bible scholars amongst you will know that Jesus himself had said, as I say, the very same thing to his disciples a bit earlier in his ministry. When he asked um, them, sorry, when he was asked, what is the uh, greatest commandment? And on that occasion, 
Jesus went on to say that the entire law, all the prophets can be summarized, captured in these two things, love God and love your neighbor. In other words, everything else you have learned boils down to this, love God and love your neighbor. And so Jesus is saying, your love for God will be measured by how you love other people. Your love for God will be measured by how you love others. Not just by how often you read your Bible, or if you go to church, but how you love. It's how you love that matters. It's so simple, yet it's so very difficult. Other people can be hard to love. They can disappoint you. They can gossip about you. They can let you down. They have different values. They may have opposing political views. They say things and do things that hurt you. That forgiving people is hard. Sacrificing for others is very hard. But as difficult as it may be, Jesus is saying, this is the most important thing that you can do. Love God, love your neighbor. Well, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. There's no need for a consultant, no need for a task force, no need for a committee. The old document is good. Its recommendations are the same. Well, how did the expert in the law reply to that? Well, the Bible tells us that he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wanted confirmation that what he was already doing, the way he was already living, was the right way of doing things. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, this wasn't some idle question. It was a question that was often asked by Jewish teachers and scholars. Some rabbis would say, only your fellow Jew is your neighbor. Others would say, only Jews who follow the law are your neighbors. Certainly they would not say, a Roman is your neighbor, or a Gentile is your neighbor. And the expert in the law expected Jesus to confirm the limits of this commandment. He didn't expect to be challenged. He just wanted to confirm that he had met the minimum standards, the minimum requirements. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm guilty of this all the time. Because loving God and loving people is hard. And to do that means I have to change. It means my priorities have to be different. It means my life isn't all about me. It means this whole Christian thing shouldn't be just about me. Who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And when the lawyer asked this question, I suspect Jesus saw just how lost this man was, and he wanted to help him. And so it's then that he told this amazing story about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, being robbed and beaten and left half dead. And then these three characters coming upon him, and they, the way in which each of them acted towards this unfortunate man. 
Now, we haven't got time this evening to consider why two out of three people passed by on the other side, but why they might have thought the cost was too great or the task too inconvenient or simply too big, or feeling that no one else is stopping, so why should I? What am I meant to do about it? I mean, I can't fix the problem of crime on the road to Jericho by myself in this one moment. Each of these characters saw the situation, and each of them had a choice to make. But the Bible tells us that a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds. But the priest and the Levite knew a lot about the law, and they chose to do nothing. The Samaritan would have been considered a heretic, a blasphemer, one who was contagious, literally contagious with unbelief and apostasy, would have been considered the very last person in the world to have the right thoughts about God and sacrificial service. He was the exact opposite of the expert in the law in every way, but the Samaritan chose to do something. You see, there's a big difference between knowing and doing. An infinite distance between just knowing and doing. In his last ever sermon, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this. The first question the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What the Samaritan did, he did at real personal cost and very real personal risk. But true compassion is not just a feeling. It always leads to action. And then Jesus asked the final question, which of these three men then do you think was a neighbour to the man on the road? Which of these men turned knowing into doing? And the expert in the law said, no doubt, biting his lip, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus responded, go and do likewise. So the one who you think is a heretic and a sinner and doesn't believe and doesn't know, you go and do like him. This is a powerful story, a powerful idea that has the power and the potential to transform lives. And as a judge, especially for me as a Christian judge, I believe in transformation. I passionately believe in transformation. I believe that people's lives, people's hearts can be changed for the better can be completely turned around if they have the right support and encouragement to assist them to make the right choices. When people commit crimes, there is rarely only one reason. So many of the defendants who come before the courts have myriad problems, all interconnected and all contributing 
to a chaotic lifestyle that sometimes leads to the commission of offences. Now, I'm not making excuses for them, but that is the reality. And recognising that, we, judges, try, where possible, to impose sentences that not only punish, not only seek to keep the public safe, but also attempt creatively to rehabilitate and discourage further offenders. We've also begun to partner with other organisations and agencies in the city to extend the reach of what we do as judges beyond the courtroom in an effort to support the fantastic work that is being done by others around this city and this county in a variety of programmes, programmes that seek to reduce crime. Let me tell you about a couple of initiatives which Liverpool judges are involved with as part of our growing outreach programme. Twice a year, the first one is Conservative Knife Crime. Twice a year, Merseyside Police, in partnership with Everton in the community, and, and for those blues amongst you, you can feel justly proud that your team is involved with an enormous uh, range of very positive programmes. Uh, Liverpool might be winning the league, but they're not. Uh, they've got a bit of work to do to catch up with Everton in terms of its community work. So, partnering with Everton in the community and Merseyside Police and now uh, the judges at Liverpool Crown Court, in particular one judge, uh, his honour judge Fluid, um, uh, twice a year uh, there is a programme working with youths who are at risk of becoming involved in serious and organised crime, in particular knife crime and now also at county lines intimidation. It's a groundbreaking initiative aimed at steering these often vulnerable young people away from a life of crime. Each programme, let me tell you a little bit about it, each programme takes 15 students aged between about 14 and 16 who have been selected from schools in areas which are blighted by gang activity, drugs and knives. And these students start the programme at the police station by being sworn in as trainee detectives with their own warrant cards. I hope they take the warrant cards in at the end. <laughs> and they then begin to investigate their first case. It's a fictional case involving the stabbing of a young 14-year-old boy who was seriously injured uh, but will survive. And then over the course of a week, uh, these uh, 15 young people who begin by being suspicious of the police, not really wanting to be there, sitting down, as it were, hunched, um, and uh, giving to all the world the impression that they're thoroughly bored, and soon begin to engage. Uh, over the course of a the week, they interview the victim, his family, and the chief suspect, all played by professional actors, and they gather enough evidence to take the case to court. They work a lot alongside experienced detectives and get to see firsthand the impact of these sorts of offences. They visit Alderhey Children's Hospital, the place where young victims typically are treated, and they get a frank talk from a member of the medical staff about knife crime injuries and the devastating and life-changing effect of these injuries. They also meet and talk to the parents of Sam Cook, 
a young man stabbed to death in Liverpool city centre only a few years ago. They then get a trip to Liverpool Crown Court. That's where we come in. Of course, it's the highlight of the week for them. <laughs> and where they get to talk to one of our judges, Judge Fluitt, and they watch uh, part of the case where the suspect is tried for this serious assault. And Judge Fluitt does a lot of work uh, with the project team to ensure that the students understand the role of judges and the potential consequences for anyone uh, who becomes involved in criminal offending. And there's a presentation ceremony at the end of the week attended by judges, especially those who support Everton. We've got one of them here this evening, who only goes to meet some of the Everton old players. <laughs> Senior police officers are there as well, and directors of Everton in the community, and as I say, Everton players past and present. And all of the feedback gathered so far suggests that the programme is having a real and positive impact on these young people. And in fact, in terms of their changed attitudes, changed attitudes towards carrying knives, involvement in serious offending, and more generally, changed attitudes in terms of their relationship with the police, who they start off with at the week being very suspicious about and also positive attitudes towards a criminal justice system. Also, and equally importantly, these young people go back to their communities where they are likely to be influencers within their community, to have an influence on their peers. And the hope is that step by step, things will change. Another program we're involved with is something we call the Madison Internship and the judge heading this up is in the congregation this evening in the audience tonight. The other initiative that I'm going to mention then is this one, the Madison Internship. It's called the Madison Internship after a well-respected and very loved local judge who died quite recently, Sir David Madison. And the aim of this internship is to offer a young person who has a desire to follow a career in the law, but has few, if any, support structures in their lives, an experience um, that will uh, be invaluable to them as they go forward with their university applications. And the experience is um, that they will get an opportunity to meet people that could encourage and assist them with this ambition. So again, working with Everton in the community and using their experience with inner city schools, uh, we have identified a number of secondary schools with sick forms in Liverpool in socially deprived areas. Sick formers with an interest in the law can then apply for the internship programme. The finalists are going to be invited to the QE2 Law Courts for a selection day where the winner will be chosen. And this person will then have the opportunity to attend at the court as often as their studies allow during the remainder of the year, meeting the judges, sitting in court, spending time with court staff, spending time in barristers' chambers and solicitors' offices spending time with the police, so that by the end of their time with us, 
this young person will have plenty to talk about in their personal statement on their application for university. A fund of material that they simply would not have, would never have an opportunity to gather, but for this opportunity. Because unlike young people who are blessed, as it were, to come from better homes, with good support structures, lots of after-school clubs and all sorts of opportunities like that, these sick formers often have very little. And so we're giving them this opportunity that when they write their personal statement, uh, they will have so much to talk about. We are also looking to put in place funding for these young children because often they will not have appropriate clothing to wear, a suit or like, to come to court uh, for lunch and travel costs and the like. And His Honour Judge Aubrey is heading up this new and very exciting opportunity. Now these are just two of the outreach <coughs> initiatives that judges in Liverpool are involved with. There are others. Our work with the universities, all of the universities in Liverpool, our active relations with other faith groups, both the cathedrals and with uh, groups such as uh, our services at the synagogue, and more recently uh, we have the privilege of having a meal at the Abdul Quilliam Mosque in Kensington. It was a fantastic occasion. We were made very, very welcome by a community who want to be civically engaged. And they're coming uh, to our building to have lunch with us in a few weeks' time. The days of judges being anonymous, hidden away, and apparently remote are long gone. As judges of the Crown Court, we are keen to be seen as part of and involved with this community that we serve, aware of its rich history, aware and responding to its culture and the diversity of its population, and fully aware of its needs. And if we can do that, if I can do that, then we can better perform the role we are appointed to perform. The reality is, but a life of loving God and loving others, putting God first and actively wanting the best for others, is ever a challenge. As I say, it's almost certainly more satisfying than the alternatives, but it's still a really difficult project. Loving people in the good times and the bad. Loving people when love isn't returned. Loving people when you really don't like them or like what they have done. And that's the challenge. We each have a choice to make. And so this evening, remember, when it comes to knowing and doing, mind the gap.
is a question that I can't answer. <laughs> Anybody like to start the ball rolling? Um, thank you very much for your very interesting and perceptive talk. Your Honour, do I have to call you Your Honour? Sorry, do I have to say Your Honour? No, no, no. Okay. Um, is it well, your... it depends. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in front of me, so <laughs> Okay. Andrew, um, please. Andrew. Andrew, okay. Um, is it your perception that the courts are less friendly towards Christians? I'm thinking of cases like the Ashes Bakery in, in Belfast, which got all the way to, to the, the high of the Supreme Court, didn't it? Even the appeal court voted um, uh, uh, against them. And also street preachers. It seems to me that there are judges, and one of them um, with a similar name to yours, and if you know, I'm talking about Millery, um, I've seen some of their comments, and they're not at all sympathetic to Christians. Now, how far can your Christian faith inform the way you rule on, on these cases, which, I mean, are a grief to me. I just think, you know, this, this is the, well, a Christian nation, and there should be freedom to preach the gospel on the streets. But it seems to me that there are, there are, certain, there are certain passages in the Bible that are no longer um, allowed to be, to be uh, read out in, in public, which I find tragic, because we either believe this is God's word or we don't. Um, I'm not sure about the um, street preacher. Is, is this, um, as far as I understand, I, I come from a non-conformist background. I was a member of the Salvation Army for years and years, and we preached on the street and blew very loud instruments for a long time. <laughs> and nobody stopped me, although on one Sunday morning when I started blowing my tube at 8.30 in the morning, someone threw a packet of peas out the window at me. <laughs> I don't blame them for that at all, frankly. Um, but when it comes to, I, I've never encountered any, in, as it were, incompatibility between my faith and the laws that I have to uphold. Now, in relation to the, um, the Belfast Bakery case, as you know, within the Christian um, community, there are, there's, there's no, it isn't necessarily the case that all Christians agree, as it were, on that particular, on that particular subject. Um, there is a range of opinion, even within the church, but as you will appreciate, the laws have to apply to everyone. It's a fundamental principle of fairness and justice. Um, and in that particular case, uh, the courts decided that uh, where you offer a service to the public as a whole, the service has to be freely available. You cannot discriminate against any particular class. So that's the difficulty. Um, a a subsidiary question then. Let's suppose hypothetically you have a street preacher brought before you um, and you feel that this prosecution should not have gone ahead, do you have the right to, as a judge, make comment about the CPS and the police and um, how far is the judiciary separate from the, the police and are you allowed to make recommendations? Because I think some of the um, instructions that the police are getting is, is, is going to lead to conflict. We also have to be very careful as judges. Um, uh, we have to apply the law, and it's not our decision whether a case is brought to court or not. That's a decision of the prosecuting authority. They have to apply a particular test. There are 
of times we can raise a question about whether or not it's in the public interest to prosecute something or not. Um, but ultimately, if they decide to prosecute, we have to make sure that the trial is conducted fairly. So um, that, I think, is the answer to the question. Um, but am I alarmed at the approach of our laws to cases like this? Frankly, no, I'm not. Um, I, I understand your concerns. And there is a perception, I know, in some quarters of the church that in some way there was a campaign against Christians, but that's not been my experience. Thank you very that much. that reassures you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been really inspiring and challenging as well. And thank you for sharing so much of your own faith. I, I, judging by your uh, teacher's comments that you are too breezy and not bright enough. I hope your teacher would agree you're bright enough, but have you um, have you brought breeziness? Sorry? A late breeziness where have you brought have you brought breeziness into your adult life? It'd be such a shame if you didn't and into your professional life. A slightly flippant question, but I hope there's a kind of serious one behind it. Uh, well I I I don't think my courtroom is my courtroom is appropriately serious, I think, but but uh, I hope it's a, also a nice place to work. Um, and I try and maintain good relationships with everybody, including everyone who appears in front of me, apart from the odd defendant. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I hope so. I hope that the way I, I, I work is, is appropriately breezy as well as bright. <laughs> it's not always serious. I probably tell too many bad jokes. The great thing about being a judge is that you can say something which you think is funny and everybody laughs, whether it's funny or not. They feel obliged to laugh. Not to so. I don't know if everybody agrees with me that the, the views of our first contributor down here, and uh, I say there's a range of views, I suppose that's true, isn't it? Um, oh, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> She's not been before you, right? No, no. She has. <laughs> um, we go back a long way. We haven't spent some time together in the courtroom. Um, I was just wondering if you could just um, talk a little bit about um, what, what, it's, what it facilities there are within the court for people of different faiths and how um, people use those facilities and in the everyday life of the court. I'm just thinking one day I did go and use those facilities. It was like a prayer room or something Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, to be honest, I'm not really sure how well used it is. Uh, I know that there's a room designated as a prayer room or a quiet room. And, um, there used to be a Christian lawyer's uh, uh, group that met Weekly. I'm not sure it does meet at the moment. Um, so, apart from the prayer, I'm not sure. So, so I'm not sure that uh, uh, I can say more other than that there is a prayer and that's the, the accommodation we make. But it, in a sense, it is a, a, an entirely secular place in the sense that um, it is designed to be accessible to everyone. So I guess the subsidiary question is, yeah. as a, a community in the city and across the diocese, how can we support you as an institution, so as a, as a Crown Court and as you as individuals, as judges, as 
um, prosecutors, defendants, you know, how do we, how can we support you more in the work that you, that you do in that particular place but, but across, across the piece? It's interesting. Um, I think there is, a, I think there's a change going on within within the the attitude of the judiciary generally, from the top to the bottom, in terms of the the amount of outreach work, for example, that we do. Uh, because, as I said, uh, traditionally judges were very remote, probably, but um, certainly from the senior judges down, there is a, a real encouragement now to get involved much more in all sorts of things, and um, both the core centre and our, our the staff are incredibly busy at being involved in projects, Sister Homeless, um, uh, Big Civilers of Whitechapel, um, so and all sorts of things like that. Um, and uh, I think we are just recognise the need for us to become engaged in that way as well. Um, hence my desire that we should not only have a very visible contact with the cathedrals, um, but also with other faith groups as well. Now, to answer your question, what can you do? Um, I'd quite like to see the day, and this is a fairly radical idea, and there's no money for it, where I'm recognising that, as I said, people that come to a Crown Court, come to any court centre, uh, uh, don't only come with the, as it were, baggage of having committed a criminal offence, they come with a whole range of problems. Um, and it'd be quite nice if a, if a Crown Court or a court centre like we have uh, became a problem-solving place where there were lots of other agencies represented within the building so that um, someone, uh, in, in terms of the way that we deal with them, if they're not going to prison, then there are a range of options. They could, have their, uh, they could be signposted at that place to a whole range of social justice um, agencies that could assist them in terms of their homelessness issues, because so many events we have of, of these problems, homelessness issues, um, problems in terms of domestic violence, and so uh, signposting around that, debt counselling, all sorts of things like that. And so as part of a team uh, approach to problem-solving court centre, and other thoughts, all sorts of things you can do. But there's no money for it. <laughs> I thought Ellen was going to ask you this question. <coughs> I thought Ellen was going to ask you this question. Not a bit louder than um, What's your views on locking women up when all the research indicates it doesn't work? What's my views on locking women? <laughs> Good question. Yeah. As a judge or just generally? <laughs> well, unless you want to confess something. <laughs> Sometimes it's necessary, I'm afraid. Uh, very occasionally, we try, we try not to lock anybody up, but sometimes it is necessary. Uh, uh, we always take into consideration uh, the needs of others when it comes to, in particular, someone who has childcare responsibilities, like typically like a woman. And so we don't often send women to prison, sometimes we have to. Uh, but before we do that, we make sure that everything is done to avoid doing that. And if we have to, we have no choice making sure that, uh, that there are systems in place to support the children. 
And because there are one, so then that would maybe be a very good reason why we shouldn't, whatever the circumstances, lock up a woman. Um, because sending someone to prison, anyone, but particularly someone like a woman with child care responsibilities, has a, an enormous impact. We know that, not only on the person who's sent to prison, but in particular in relation to the children. I suspect sending a mother to a prison who has young children and that degree of separation is probably something from which the children are left scarred forever. Now we know that. We know that. But if we don't occasionally send them to prison for things that, that really deserve it, the Daily Mail will, <laughs> will have a good old go at us. But it's interesting you ask that question because uh, the perception, certainly amongst Daily Mail readers, are that judges are soft. And I suspect if I gave you all here an example of a typical case that we deal with, your sentence would be lighter than mine. We are not soft when it comes to sentence. We are not soft. We, day in, day out, give sentences which are eye-watering in their length for offences that are incredibly serious. But nobody enjoys sending someone to prison. None of the judges I know. If they did, they wouldn't, they shouldn't be judges. And to seriously answer your question, we think long and hard before we send to prison anyone, whatever their gender, who has, for example, child caring responsibilities. If that answers your question. Give me time for one more question. Any other judge want to chip in here? <laughs> no? Okay. That means I've Either it's spectacularly wrong. <laughs> I hope this is a um, three-foot putt question uh, for the ignorant American in the back here. Um, could you talk a little about why you are the um, honorary recorder of the Queen's Court and why it is technically called the Queen's Court for someone who doesn't have the background of why it's called the Queen's Court? The, the, the Crown Court. Yes. Sure. Right. <laughs> Hardly a three-foot uh, uh, Whereas in America, I think the, you, the state, prosecute people. Here, the, the state is, the, the Queen embodies, or the, the, the state is it was. Queen represents the state in our country. So in your country, the criminal prosecution is the state of Mississippi versus Fred Bloggs, here is the Queen versus Fred Bloggs. Um, a criminal offence is technically an offence against the, the uh, what is it, the Queen's Peace. Uh, so, uh, symbolically, uh, she prosecutes criminal offences. So in a criminal offence, um, the prosecution act on behalf of the state in our quaint constitutional country as uh, identifies the Queen. So that's why it's the Crown Court. Um, yeah, if that answers the question. It is simply the public and uh, uh, possibly of a criminal offence. Thank you so much. All right. Um, thank you.
one tiny bit of singing when we get to the Nantimetis and the second slide, but you will know the tune, even if the words don't look very familiar. <coughs> the Lord Almighty grant us a quiet night and a perfect end. Amen. Our help is in the name of the Lord. today, O oh God, a glad heart and a clear conscience, that as we come to this day's end, we may rest in peace with Christ our Lord. Amen. You, O oh Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Leave us not, O oh Lord, our God. Into your hands, O oh Lord, I commend my spirit. Into your hands, O oh Lord, I commend my spirit. Your son. 